Well, that was an interesting thing. Oh, that was interesting, wasn't it? Did you guys like that skit? Frank and Emmett, yes. A little interesting. Uh, everybody was a little freaked out by the lollipop. I know that. I get that part. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was talked about in that skit was a question, wasn't it? How are you doing? There was a question that was part of that. And there's a lot of questions in life, aren't there? There's a lot of opportunities to ask questions, aren't there? That's one of the challenges that we often have is there's just a lot of questions in life. Life is full of questions. I mean, think about the questions you may have asked yourself even this morning. Should I eat breakfast? Or should I wait and get a bagel at church, right? That's what the kids were asking, right? Should I eat breakfast or should I wait and get a bagel at church? What table should I sit at, right? That was the question, right? What table should I sit at? Maybe when do the San Francisco Giants play the Dodgers today? Though, you know, I don't know if it really matters, but will they win, right? That's a good question. Some of those Dodgers fans, you can just stay quiet here, but we know that that's been, been a challenge. Sometimes the questions have pretty clear answers, don't they? You know, you guys figured out what you're going to eat for breakfast. You guys figured out what you're, where you're going to sit. But there's other ones that are not so easy to answer, aren't they? You don't know if the Giants are going to beat the Dodgers. Probably unlikely, unfortunately, but you just never know, right? There's other questions that are even harder to answer. You know, um, if you think about questions, we ask a lot of questions in our lives, don't we? You know, recently my wife and I were watching this uh, Eagles documentary. Has anybody seen this two-part documentary about the Eagles? It's an interesting documentary that tells about the rock band. And I found myself really being curious about the Eagles. I wanted to find out what is it that Eagles... Like, are the Eagles one of the most popular rock bands ever? As it turns out, they are. Who's number one, do you think? The Beatles. Yep, the Beatles. Then Leb Zeppelin, then the Eagles. I also wanted to know why did the Eagles break up? You know, they broke up, and then they actually got back together again. So I started searching on that. We also uh, were in Alaska, my wife and I, last week, and we were hiking a glacier. So I found myself asking questions about why are glaciers blue? Why are they blue? And then how do they form? And there's just a lots of questions. And I'm going to give you a quick moment right now to think about a question that you might have asked yourself over the last three days. Or maybe it's a question you ask Google. Maybe this is a question that you asked Google, or maybe it's a question you asked your parent or a friend, and I'm going to give you just a quick moment to share that at your table. Now, you don't have to share the deepest questions you might have asked, but maybe it's just a question that you found yourself asking yourself, and I'm going to give you a moment to just share at your table. What are some questions? And if you don't remember what you asked Google, just go into the search of Google, and you'll find out what you asked yourself. I'm going to give you just a moment as a table to do that, okay? All right. Sounds like you guys are still talking. Just a few more minutes. You don't have to answer the questions. Just ask what were, questions you, what were some questions you asked each other or asked yourself. You guys crack me up. Well, let's come back together now. I think it's clear that we ask ourselves a lot of questions. We ask a lot of questions of life, don't we? A lot of things to know. But I think it's also true that not all questions are equally significant. Not all questions are equally significant. Many questions in our lives might have simple answers, right? I, I, you know, getting the answer is satisfying, but it doesn't necessarily change your life. 
you know, knowing about the rock band the Eagles has been fun, but it hasn't really impacted my life in any dramatic way. It hasn't changed how I would live my life. But, you know, there's other questions in our lives that are more than just curiosities. They're powerful questions that we can ask ourselves about meaning and purpose. And the answers to those questions can actually impact and potentially change our lives or shift how we live our lives. And in those situations, we find that Google or even ChatGPT, as smart as it may seem, don't really have the answers to those deeper questions. They're often more complicated than like a simple paragraph or some data point is going to help you with, right? You know, questions like, why am I here? Why doesn't my job feel as satisfying as it did before? How can I fix my marriage? Why does the world seem more chaotic than it did in the past? Or even questions like, how can I battle depression? Those are hard questions. They're questions that are not easy to answer. And in many ways, they're even sometimes scary questions to ask. Because we realize that we may ask the questions and we may not find the answer. It may be hard, or maybe the answer that we find is not easy or even not what we want. But those are the questions that I think have the capacity to open us up to new ways of thinking and potentially to change our lives. I mean, the fact is, right, life is complicated. There's a lot of questions to ask, and there's things that are amazing things to learn about. It's wonderful to learn about glaciers. We were hiking, and just so cool to learn about glaciers. But there's also hard questions that we ask about meaning and purpose in our lives. And those things can weigh on our minds. And I think what's often true is I don't know that we always share those questions or that we ask those questions with others. And I think that's because either we're afraid of feeling weak or somehow appearing like we don't know things, or maybe we're afraid that that other person's not going to have the answer either, and then we're going to really feel alone. You know, this week we're going to start a seven-week series that's uh, along with a bunch of other churches in the Bay Area that is called Explore God. And during this series, we're going to be digging into seven of what we would call these big questions of life that might have the capacity to challenge and even change our lives. Now, some of you might be here today because you were invited by a friend or maybe even heard about this. It was advertised on Facebook and, and Instagram and other places. And if you're here for that reason and you were invited by a friend and you've not been here before, I want to welcome you. I'm really glad you're here. You know, maybe this whole church thing feels a little awkward. Just so you know, we don't always meet in tables. So if you're, you know, if this is, eh, you know, next week we'll be in rows, so it's okay. But we hope this is a place where you feel safe to wrestle with the big questions, where it's okay to ask the questions and the big questions in life. Because I don't think there's often enough that we have safe places to do that, to ask those big questions. And we want this place to be a safe place for you. So really, I'm so glad you're here. Because this series is about exploring those big questions in life. And part of this series includes the fact that we're having discussion groups to enable that. So some of our small groups are going to be going through these same questions and talking through them together. We've also created specific small groups, especially during this time, that run for like these eight weeks, seven to eight weeks, and they're really going to go through these questions. And these are groups that are designed, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you don't say, you say, I'm not sure I know what I believe about this, great, come to those groups. That is a safe place to have that conversation, to have an open conversation with others about what these questions, the answers to these questions might mean. And if you want to join one of those groups, there's an Explore God flyer on your table, and it gives you information for leaders of those groups. There's one group on Zoom. There's one group in person. 
that's meeting in person that's starting up soon. The group on Zoom just started, but they're very welcome to have, they're very happy to have others come. So I want to encourage you, if you're interested, just get that information and reach out to those leaders, or just talk to me at the end of the service. I'd love to tell you more about it. So this morning, we're going to kick off our series with one of those big questions. Does life have a purpose? Or maybe another way, is there meaning to life? Does life have any meaning to it anyway? That's a pretty big question, right? You know, might as well start big, right? Let's just start with the big ones. Now, I would guess that maybe some point in your life, you may have asked a question like this or a variant of this question. Oftentimes, this is when things aren't going great. And maybe then you sit in that situation and you say, what is this all about anyway? Why am I going through this? What is this all for? Does life have any real meaning to this? Why am I here and what is the point? I've been through that in my own part of my life at various times. I guess maybe you have. It's one of the biggest questions we can typically ask. It's an existential question that is really a cosmic search for meaning and the deeper purpose in life. So, of course, I got curious if people actually ask these types of questions of Google. Do people ask these deeper questions of Google? And sure enough, they do. Here is a list of the top 10 existential questions that people in the U.S. have asked Google. Now, I thought it was really funny because I'm not sure I would consider why is sky blue or is hot dog a sandwich an existential question? Um, That'll be our week six of Explore God, is hot dog a sandwich? No, we're not going to talk about that. But you'll notice that what is the meaning of life is number three on this list. On other lists I look at, it was number one. And I think what that says is we're not alone in asking this question. It seems that we as humans often have this question, and we often like to ask it. And in fact, this is one of the most ancient questions that humans have asked. From what we know, it's one of the more ancient questions. And this morning, we're going to look at what one of those people who came before us who asked this question had to say about it. But before we do that, I want to pray for us. So, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this chance to be together and to gather and to learn and to ask questions together. We know you're big enough to to handle that, and we, we thank you for that. And we just pray that you would come now, Lord, and speak through and to us in this service more about the truth of who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the earliest writers dealing with this search for meaning was a king named Solomon. Solomon lived about 3,000 years ago, and he wasn't just any king. Solomon was, as the Bible records, the richest, most powerful and accomplished and wisest person living at that time. In fact, 2 Chronicles says this, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all, all the other kings of the earth. All the kings of the earth sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. I think if there's anyone who might have perspective on the meaning of life, it would be someone like Solomon. I mean, Solomon, it says here, was so wise that everyone came to him for information and to know about life. And in fact, the Bible is, there's three books of the Bible that are associated or or attributed to Solomon. One of them is the book of wise sayings known as Proverbs, and the other two books are the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. This last book, Ecclesiastes, really does address this question of the meaning and the purpose of life, and that's the book we're going to look at today. Now, if any of you are writers or taking English uh, in school, right, one of the lessons you learn, maybe if you're you're an author, is like, if you're going to write a book, you've got to start your book with a really interesting sentence, right? You want a sentence that draws the reader in. 
Well, let's look at how Solomon starts his book that he's writing here. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All right, there we are. We're done. We've answered the question for today. Next week. No, okay, we're not done. Those are pretty provocative words to start your book with, right? And especially coming from the wisest person in that time. So clearly we see Solomon is making an impression on his readers. Maybe Solomon's having a really bad day or a week, maybe. Maybe Solomon's doing this for shock value. Is that possible? But what's interesting is that we find that Solomon uses this word meaningless 32 more times in the same book. So it's not just the opening sentence. He's got more going on. In fact, this is his main theme of the book. To really understand what I think Solomon is saying, though, we have to look more clearly at what this word meaningless actually means. So let's look at this. If you look at an original Hebrew of the Old Testament, which is what Solomon would have been writing in, the word that he uses is havel, which is more accurately described as vapor or breath. The word really describes something that's transitory, that's fleeting, and somehow is not satisfactory. It doesn't mean it's not valued. It's not that it's valueless, but it's something that doesn't last. It's something that maybe even looks solid, and you, but you try to grab onto it, and it, it kind of goes away. It's not there the whole time. There's no substance. It's here, but then it's gone. <clears throat> I have a very sophisticated physical example of this. I have what you call here a spray bottle. And this is what makes va- vapor. And this, you guys see that? You can see this in the... I'll try not to do it on my computer so that I won't, you know, fritz it out. Solomon says that everything is vapor. It's here and then it's gone. Kind of grab it, you kind of see it. Okay, I, I can feel it, but it's gone. Okay, but let's, let's, let's move on here. Let, let's, before you decide that Solomon is like kind of the glass half full guy, right? There's always one of those in the room. Oh boy, it's always negative, you know, always about meaningless, right? And he wrote this maybe at a bad time in his life. He was really down or something like that. I mean, think about this. Solomon in this time is like a combination of like Elon Musk and Barack Obama, Warren Buffett, and Oprah Winfrey all rolled up into one, right? He was someone that you would really go to to try to understand because Solomon could say that he'd actually sort of seen and done everything. And so Solomon goes on to describe this search for meaning, and it's clear that Solomon is actually speaking from his own experience. You could even say that Solomon is data-driven. He's living and he's looking at the data, and he's figuring out what's happening with this. And first, let's look at what Solomon describes. So first, Solomon describes that he sought wisdom and knowledge. He writes, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon was always the smartest guy in the room when he was alive. The Bible says he was not just wise about life principles, but it says that he could speak authoritatively on plants and animals and birds and reptiles and fish. The guy really pursued knowledge. He applied himself to know things, and it showed. And I think we can relate well to that in this Bay Area. Our culture values highly being smart and acquiring knowledge. More people in the United States are pursuing college or advanced degrees than ever in the history. And why do we do that? I think it's because we believe that knowledge will lead to success, and success will eventually lead to happiness. 
We hope that by knowing more facts and maybe using those facts and that information, we hope to change the world. And we hope in that process to position ourselves better in that world for a place of success. I mean, some of you youth here might be starting the college application process. And the message you may be hearing, whether it's overt or not, is make sure you get into a good college. Why? Because we believe that that's going to lead to getting more knowledge, to greater success, and we think, therefore, a happier life. And in the example of Solomon, wisdom and knowledge was actually helpful for his success. We can't say it was hurting in some ways, but somehow Solomon says it wasn't enough. It didn't satisfy. It didn't answer the questions of deeper meaning. We know this because he says this in the next line. He says, Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. It's chasing after the wind. It's kind of like that. You know, I think we can find, attempt to find meaning in wisdom and knowledge. And wisdom and knowledge is not bad. But we do chase after these things a lot of times. We chase after another degree or certification. We want to become the smartest person in the room. We often measure ourselves by how much we know. But like Solomon, I think we end up sitting in a situation where we feel like our heads are full, but our hearts are empty. Or maybe even we feel depressed because it's not enough. It's like chasing after the wind, like Solomon says. And so what happens? The search for purpose and meaning continues. Next, Solomon focuses himself on accomplishments, going to do and build and great and wonderful things. He wrote this, I undertook, great, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. This was big stuff back in his time. Didn't really have like, you know, the apple building or anything. But, but actually, what's interesting is he lists these things and he doesn't even mention, Solomon doesn't even mention the greatest thing he was known for building, which was the temple. Solomon was the one that was the, uh, it, really what you would call the pinnacle of the kingship of Israel, was to go and build this temple. He did this. He built this temple, and it was considered at the time one of the wonders of the world. It was amazing. People who saw it were said it was incredible. It was amazing. And I think we also can relate to this desire, can't we? The message about all around us is, you know, what are you doing to change the world? We want to change the world, right? That's kind of a Silicon Valley ethos. How are you changing the world? Do something great, right? Steve Jobs, who was one of the icons of the Silicon Valley, said this. I think if you do something that turns out pretty good, then you should go do something else wonderful. Not dwell on it for too long. Just figure out what's next. Okay. And Steve did that. I mean, you can see that amazing building. That I mean, he built a company. Some of you guys work for that company. He did that. And I think we can say that Solomon did the same thing in his time. He built the most amazing structure ever in his time. They all kept doing wonderful things and amazing things. Maybe we're not people who build companies or buildings, right? But a lot of times we're doing what we can to build our resumes, or maybe even we're investing in our kids so that they will be highly accomplished because we want to impress others, or maybe even more so, it feels like that brings us purpose and it brings us meaning. And again, that does bring a form of reward. That's, there is good thing. I mean, it's nice to do things that mean something and matter. And yet Solomon, when he looks at what he did, he says this, my heart took delight in all my labor. So he enjoyed the process 
and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. It's kind of a chasing after the wind again. It's kind of this, okay, kind of see it. Somehow this didn't satisfy. It wasn't enough. It felt to him like vapor. Kind of, it's there, but it's not quite there. I mean, you look at Solomon's temple now, there's what's left is one wall that's left in Jerusalem. I don't think anybody on their deathbed looks up and wishes they had a better resume. So, the search for purpose continues. The search for purpose continues. So Solomon figured, you know what? How about pleasure and experiences? I'm going to go for pleasure and experiences. That's what it's all about. You could summarize that like eat, drink, and be merry. And Solomon had the means to do it. Solomon said this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I mean, from the evidence we see, Solomon really went for this one. He had thousands of servants to take care of every need, and he had over a thousand wives and mistresses. Somehow he thought that relationships, somehow he would find fulfillment in relationships, so he just multiplied those as much as he could. It's almost like if you took all the rich actors' lives that we know about and wrapped them into one, I think this was kind of how Solomon was seemingly living his life. Now, I don't know what this is like. I had a little taste of this sort of pleasure piece. I work for a software company as well, so that's the other part of what I do. And we had this executive meeting that we went to Chicago, and the, the CEO really loves to eat. And so he got all excited because he got us a, a, a reservation at a pretty famous restaurant called Nobu. Anybody familiar with Nobu? It's like designer sushi, right? And I can tell you this, there were seven of us, and I know there were more waiters than, than us. And we did that thing where you're like, hey, let the waiter decide. We don't know what's going to come. So every five minutes, we'd have a new dish showing up at the table. And it was the kind of dish you had to describe with a paragraph, right? Well, here's this thing that's from the deep part of Australian, you know. And you're like, whoa, this is so cool. And it was really neat. And there was like all laid out on the plates. And it was really cool. It was really wonderful. I have, I don't know. I actually do know what it costs. I'm not going to tell you what it costs the company. <clears throat> I was like, what? <laughs> this is, um, but the next morning, I, I couldn't fully remember what I actually ate, right? There were probably 20 dishes, and I couldn't remember half of them, and I couldn't remember what it tasted like. It was gone. It was really cool, and then it was kind of gone. Like Solomon says, it's like vapor, like chasing after the wind. And so what do you do? You chase it more, right? What else do you do? You keep chasing it. So Solomon, what did he do? He said, I also, he also tried to find meaning in wealth. He says, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Okay, so the Bible records that in gold alone, Solomon's annual income was equal to current dollar value of $1.5 billion a year just in gold for what he received. Some folks have tried to estimate the, the worth because they describe things in the Bible and we try to put it into today's dollars. The, the, some people think it was around $2 trillion of what his actual total worth was, was. That blows away the richest person in the world who could currently, depending on the stock market, is Elon Musk, who has about a net worth of about $250 billion. Solomon had access to everything, and yet, he says, it didn't satisfy it wasn't enough. It was vapor. It was just vapor. 
You know, Solomon, of all people, should have had it all, and he should have been content, but he was not. Everything that he tried to grab hold of didn't end up of any substance. Now, I know maybe what, how you think. I mean, if you think like me at all, there's a part of you that's like, well, Solomon probably didn't do it right. Like, if I had that, I would do it right. I would get that figured out. Just give me a portion of that, and I would get it right. Solomon didn't have things we have today. He didn't have the iPhone 15. So Solomon clearly probably had issues. But here's the deal, folks. Solomon is, in his wisdom, touching on a truth and an inherent problem with trying to acquire knowledge and accomplishments and pleasure and wealth. He's touching on something that is just universally true. It's never enough. It's never enough. It doesn't quite satisfy There's author C.S. Lewis, who's a Christian author, describes this as an ever-increasing craving for an ever-decreasing pleasure. I could go to Nobu every week, but then I'd probably be like, well, that wasn't so good. And, you know, I wonder what's... You know, it's like, eh, it's really cool first. eh, After like 10 times, eh, you know what? There's this other place that's better, right? It's like, it's constantly, you know, like, uh, uh, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Actor and comedian Jim Carrey highlighted this reality when he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. He's had a lot, but he's describing the same thing that Solomon was describing. Okay, so now that I've just sufficiently discouraged you, let's talk a little bit more about, is there any possible answer to this larger question of the purpose or meaning of life? Well, let's look one last time at what Solomon says and what he learns. He goes really, and he started his book with these words about meaninglessness, right? And he uses this word a lot, this idea of vapor and things just kind of hard to grab. And he spends really most of his book exploring this idea. But at the end, this is the last part of his book, the last actual sentences, he comes to this conclusion. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether as good or evil. Did you catch that? In light of everything that Solomon saw, did, and experienced in his life, and that was broad, his conclusion is, you know what, in the end, it's about fearing God and following his commandments. Now, the word fear is one that we kind of get confused about. That fear is really referencing reverence and awe and respect. Essentially saying, you want to find meaning, you want to find purpose in life, there's no real meaning or purpose in all these other things or experiences. It has to start and be rooted in and be built upon a relationship with the living God. You know, there's another wise man who came into Israel about a thousand years after Solomon who said something very similar to what Solomon had discovered. Jesus of Nazareth, whom we believe... Christians believe is the revelation of God in human form, came onto this earth and he said this when he was speaking to the people of Israel about how they should be living their lives. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be given to you too. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is not saying that these other things, that knowledge or pleasure or accomplishments or wealth are necessarily wrong or inherently wrong, but he's saying that when they're given no context and no meaning and they just try to stand alone and we try to squeeze the essence out of those things, it doesn't bring the purpose and meaning that has to come from a relationship with the God who made us. 
the God who knows us. It's only in trusting the God who made and knows us that we can allow him to give to us the things that we actually need and to know better for us what we need in our lives. And until that actually happens, we're going to be restless. We're going to continue to search and wonder and kind of go for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. I had, I mean, a friend of mine was, had a beautiful red truck and it was like really cool, one of the coolest trucks. And I would say, oh, that's really neat. You've had it. And he described to me right away how someone had scratched it within the first week. Right? And that's what happens. My beautiful truck. Now it's been scratched. Uh, and it's like, that was the, like, that, within about a minute, that's what he described it as. Like, uh, that's how this stuff is, right? Uh, it's not perfect anymore. Do I get a new one? It's like, it just doesn't do it. It's, it's this. Early Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo reached the same conclusion. He said about God and the relationship with him, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we can find rest in thee. It's not necessarily the restlessness that's the problem. It's good to ask the questions. It's what we try to fill the restlessness with that gets us in trouble or leads us astray. God has made us to be in relationship with him. That is how he's designed us. And everything else that we do in life must be built on and flow from that and hang upon that. It's so curious. In a world of vapors, God is really the one true solid rock that we can rest on, the one that he wants us to hold on to him. So what does this mean for you and I as we're sitting here today at these tables? Some of you are drawing, which it's great, kind of keeps you busy as you're doing this. So maybe you're here today and you're not sure you buy into this God stuff. Everything I just said, you're like, huh, that's interesting, Ron, but you know, I hear you, you're in a church, but I don't really buy into this stuff. Or maybe you're wrestling with what you actually do believe. And I'm really glad you're here. And I'm glad you're thinking about these questions. And what I would just say is I want to invite you to stay, stay engaged in this Explore God series. For these seven, next seven weeks, we're going to wrestle and ask these questions. There's a list of questions we'll be exploring. I think there's a list here that we're going to be exploring. There's also a list on your table. I want to encourage you to, self, to open yourself up to the idea that God may be real and that he actually does want to be in relationship with you. And that he can bring meaning to your life in a way that the things that are vapors can't. You know, there's a lot of us in this room that have built our lives on following God and knowing God. And I would say it's not because it's wishful thinking. We don't do it because we've got nothing better to do. We do it because we truly believe and experience God's love and his presence and his truth in our lives. And so because of that, I think we and I are confident enough to say that if you're in that position of not sure, that it's okay to ask God to reveal himself to you in this time and in this way. I don't know how he would do that. I think God has many ways of revealing himself to people. He's done that many different ways in my own life, through other people, through experiences and situations, through dreams even. But Jesus said this to those who are seeking truth. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I want to encourage you, maybe you're still not sure, but I want to encourage you to talk to God and open up yourself up to the possibility that God is actually waiting and listening and eager to come to you and let you know who he is. And so I would encourage you to just ask a prayer and just say, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me, and I want to know more about you. 
For those of you who are here, and maybe you are a Christ follower, you're someone who has built your life on following God, I'm, I'm going to put a challenge in front of you. I invite you to consider whether somehow over time, one of these other things in your life, knowledge, pleasure, accomplishments, or wealth, have become number one in your life. And they've replaced God as your primary focus. Remember, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And so often as people, we go, no, I'm going to do this thing first, and then God's kind of later, later in my life, or later things. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. So I want to invite you, if that's you, I want to invite you to just repent and turn from that. God is inviting us to always come back to him and to lay these other things aside and let him be our focus. So in the same way, you can also invite God to make himself more real to you. Maybe you're in a place where you're like, yeah, the real stuff is this stuff I can touch. This God thing's a little fuzzy. Well, invite him to make himself more real to you as you seek him. I think all of us in this room can ask ourselves, am I truly grabbing hold of God or am I grasping at vapors? Am I grasping these things that they kind of go out of my hands? I think all of us, like Solomon, are tempted to focus on the things that are right in front of us, and we chase those things without true fulfillment. You know, there's a place in the Old Testament where God is speaking from his heart about his plans for the people of Israel, and what he says applies to all who choose to follow God and put him first in their lives. He says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And it's really on that promise that our search for purpose can rest. Let me pray for us. Lord, we confess, and I confess, that oftentimes it's so much easier to focus on these other things that are right in front of us. And sometimes we feel like, oh, but it's just hard to connect with you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would come and you would help each one of us in this room to really know in our hearts and our minds that it is worth pursuing you first. That your son Jesus said, seek first the kingdom, and that that is what it is. And yet sometimes that kingdom feels fuzzy, and yet you've told us that that actually isn't more real than the things we see around us. And so I pray that you'd open our eyes to see that in it for its truth. Help us to see the reality of your kingdom in a much deeper way. Open our eyes to see the things, of the eyes of our heart as you've described in your word so that we might see what's true. And Lord, for any of us who have kind of held these other things, I pray that you'd help those of us who've held these things that have kind of come in front of you to give those up, to let you take them and be willing to trust you with that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.